I still remember during my studies when people started to talk about soft skills. For me, that was like bullet, bullet point learning, not really valuable because I thought that a formula is way much more knowledge than talking about soft skills. But in the end, I think that's what it all came down to. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hey folks, Garrett here. In this 23rd episode of the Most Awesome Founder podcast, we introduce Freya Ulla, Vehau alum, co-founder of the online shopping tool startup Spotster, and current co-founder of digital transformation consultancy Dreithausen Sasa. We're discussing Freya's founder journey from Vehau to building Spotster with a school classmate to a unique exit and to founding a new company with the same team she built her previous one with. Freya is a high-energy entrepreneur with the passion and charisma of a great leader. So it's no wonder her Spotster team continued their entrepreneurial journeys together. So you should appreciate Freya's valuable insights into building teams, establishing company cultures that are both meaningful and fun, and what leadership looks like across product and service-oriented startups. Hope you enjoy it. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany, this is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Freya Ulla, thank you so much for joining us. It's uh, We've been talking about doing this for a while. Uh, really glad to have you on the show today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I am so disappointed I didn't get to come up to do this in person in Hamburg because it's been on my to-do list. So we'll have to find a way to make that happen um, once this madness of Corona has finally passed us. Yeah, we definitely will. But we'll make sure that the Ripaban is open then. <laughs> oh, do I need to cut that out of this episode? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so um, whew, I'm a little flustered all of a sudden. Where, where should we begin? So I like to start all of our episodes with the same question, um, with a little storytelling. So, um, you know, you being a, a Vehau alum, being a, a serial entrepreneur, being so connected into the German startup scene, um, and still being so young, Vehau is not that far in the rearview mirror for you. So I would love to hear a little bit about where you come from and kind of how you got to the point you are at today. First of all, thanks for calling me young. That's always flattering for a girl. <laughs> so uh, where do I come from? I originally came from the German countryside, close to the Dutch border, uh, close to Münster, where there is not much going on. And then at some point, I actually decided to venture into WHU and start my studies, um, which was not a really reflected decision, but it was something that came up and sounded good. So I didn't really know about the startup connections of WHU or anything. I just knew that you could make a good career going to that university and also travel the world. That is what I did. I uh, studied finance in the bachelor's and the master's degree at WHU, did a lot of 
the typical stuff for a business school student. So I went into consulting, went into investment banking, also did a little bit in the industry and decided that I would go for finance. Also went to the States to do my uh, double degree with an MBA there at Kellogg and thought myself to become a banker, which then turned around a lot after having gained some practical experience in the financial world which wasn't as thrilling or compelling as everyone told me because I was always told that's like the best thing you can do in your career and it's like the top job. And I was sitting there in front of my computer and asking myself whether this is what all those people that consider themselves as top job career points uh, is what you do all day. And so at some point during my lectures, our investment banking professor was talking about a startup that had just risen in the United States backed by Winklevoss Twins also had the idea for Facebook. And I wasn't really interested in the financing structure, but had a look at the startup. And the startup was founded by two former cheerleaders and also looked like that. <laughs> but the idea was pretty good. So it would inform you if, in their case, a fashionable dress drop in price on the internet. And I was not so much into fashionable dresses, but I was a student that was constantly broke and so I thought it would be nice to buy my electronics or anything I need at a lower price and get informed if they drop because that's what I needed as a student. And I called one of my school friends at home who was a uh, developer and asked him whether he could build something like that. And he just said, I don't know, I'll, I'll come up with a prototype. He built it over Christmas. I flew back to Germany. And at that point, we just... I'd say naively decided why not build a company out of it. So I moved back from Chicago into my kids' room at my parents at the countryside. And for like two, three months, we developed the first prototype. I wrote a business plan. We started cold calling investors. And all of a sudden, we, we had an investor. So we got our first angel investment of 250,000 euros. Decided to move to Hamburg because there are not many more developers in our little village apart from Tobias, my co-founder, moved the whole thing. And then three years later, we found ourselves with a company of 25 employees, haven't been in the German media, even haven't taken part at Höhle der Löwen, prime time, and uh, having 250,000 active users, positive revenue, and also like 6,000 partnering shops. So the startup was called Spotster. What we did is we tracked stuff on the internet that you could just put into your little shopping list and whenever it would drop in price we would inform you that was way before idealo ever had something like the price alarm or anything like that we did a lot of data analysis so we did that for three years and after three years we did something very unorthodox because we sat down with our first positive revenues and our first gains in the in the month of 2017 and decided it was going too slow, though we had all the media attention you could possibly get because we were one of those first startups having a girl in the founding team and not doing fashion, which kind of attracted all kinds of media outlets to work with us. And so we decided if that is what we get out, even though we have all the media attention in the world, that's too slow for us and we still have money in the bank. So we'll just redistribute the money and do something else, which was new at that time caught a lot of media attention again, but for different reasons. Um, but we stuck with the decision and in the end even got bought by a marketing and service agency. So we had the whole right of stirring, ending and selling that business. And then from there, 
we didn't really know what to do, to be honest. So we were just sitting around looking at job opportunities, having interviews with other startups and corporations, and at some point sat down with a beer, talked to each other and decided that none of us had found that one opportunity that he really wanted to pursue after Spotster. And that's when we decided to build a company while we didn't know what the product would ever be. So we took our team, set up a new company, and what we do right now with this company is we build software products for other companies, we set up business units for other companies, and we actively invest into companies where we actually redesign the whole production scheme and the digital appearance. So we're kind of somewhere in between an active software boutique and also a technical PE, so to say. That's kind of the story. Interesting. So j just to wrap my head around, so what's the name of the new company, just so you can have a quick plug anyways? 3000 Sasa, <laughs> which means like three jack of all trades because we've been three founders from the last company and we're not just good at one thing, but at several things. And so we came up with it. So you guys are essentially a custom software development company. There's some kind of consulting. There's actually an investment arm. I mean, are you, so there's a model in Germany that's a little bit like the venture studio type model, which is here a bit. Is that what you're doing? Are you going with established companies and trying to drive innovation or are you more of a, a, a fee for service type company? Rather like a venture studio. Yes, that's a nice term, but we're still working on the vocabulary as to how to describe our company best because uh, what we realized that it was way easier when we had our first startup that did one product we just said yeah we do this digital shopping list and then we'll inform you if we have an app and everyone's like oh okay yeah all right so right now it's uh, way more complicated to describe it but um, it's uh, also due to our customers so our customers range from well, formerly cruise ships that has gone with COVID, but then also uh, insurances, banks, production units of, of West companies, online shops, uh, hospitals, even lawyers. So there is like a bunch of stuff and we don't only do the software, but we sometimes even create whole companies for them. It depends on what the problem is. I find this transition really interesting and one that I can relate to because the first few companies I built were consultancies, like management consultancies and professional service firms. And one of the reasons I went into tech was it didn't matter how many, how much you charged per billable hour, you were still constrained by the number of hours a week that you could work. And I wanted to build something that you know, could make money while I wasn't working and could add value. And that's how I kind of got into the tech world. And after selling out of one of my first startups, I ended up building a, a software company. So here I was back again, going back into billable hour land. And, uh, and over, over that kind of journey, I started to see the pros and cons of, of both sides, but also a very, very different way of thinking. You know, how do you kind of see, you know, you've now had two very, very different experiences in company building. You know, what do you see at, from a leadership perspective? What do you see as kind of the big differences there? And do you have preferences one way or the other? I think the uh, 
the major difference is that right now you kind of have different targets. So for the first company, it was very easy. So people actually came to us and applied with us because they liked the team, they liked the product, and they could see themselves doing one specific thing for that one product. That has changed dramatically because right now we have like 15 developers working for us on various projects that vary all the time. So given that person applies with you, what do you tell him? What's his task next? So that is very different to actually get people to think themselves 100% into something completely new every couple of days. But on the other hand, what makes it more interesting is that tasks shift a lot. There's a lot of learning going on. So we constantly renew the programming languages that we use. We constantly shift the approach towards a customer or towards a problem. And we also use some of the capacity of our developers to work on our own ideas. And so the difference kind of is that A, you have to motivate them for different tasks, but B, you're more of, that's what we learned, you're more of the authority right now. Because before it was like, yes, you're the founder, but also the employees knew you're not paying very well and you're very much depending on everyone who's there to to build that ship. And right now it's more of you're still the founder, but you're the person in charge and you're the person that knows about everything that's going on, depending on the different customers. And that makes it more of a, let's say, adult relationship. Right, right. Probably our colleagues would now burst into laughter hearing you say adult <laughs> relationships, but still. <laughs> you know, I, I always think a lot about, especially from a leadership perspective, from the sales side of things, right? When you're, when you're building a, a, a technology startup, you know, you're out there, you're obviously trying to sell investors and raise funds, and you're always managing your burn rate and your runway. And but then of course, you're trying to get customers for your your product too. That's real. It's it's different managing runway than it is having to acquire clients to keep your to keep your staff working, you know, and, and keeping those billable hours at the rate that they they need to be. Was that a big shift in kind of process and thinking for you? It was a big shift, but it was a good shift, I'd say, because right now our company is 100% self-funded and uh, I never had a problem with reporting or checking the burn rate or getting funds somehow, even though it was a raise. But now that I didn't have to do that anymore and now that we have the capacity to also finance some projects on our own, you feel the difference in the degree of freedom that you get from managing your own money and not having to report because you're hiring someone who's more expensive and have to explain why the money is going faster. Um, that was a big shift. Um, when it comes to selling, it was also a big shift, but also a positive one because beforehand, most of what I did was marketing so getting our social media marketing our product marketing also our press relations going we had to run for a lot of attention because we needed users we also needed shops so sales was a part of it but it was completely different because with six thousand online shops sales is very easily done um but right now we don't have to do that marketing anymore it's all one-on-one -on -one sales I often make the joke that will probably be held against me someday that my job also takes 
place at the bar a lot, <laughs> but uh, it's more of acquiring personal relationships with your customers and making them see that you are capable of doing good stuff. And I personally prefer that kind of relationship because it's very close with all of our customers um, and you actually really know how to address them. Whereas with marketing, it's a lot of hoping and guessing that you will acquire masses of customers that you kind of try to serve, but it's always a hassle. So that was, yes, a big shift, but one that I enjoy tremendously. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I always noticed, the difference between having clients and customers being a, a service organization versus being a product is with service organizations, the margin of error is much, much smaller, right? Like when you've got, you know, tens of thousands of customers, if some of them aren't happy, you know, it's oftentimes only a small fraction and you can acquire new ones and attrition is actually built into the model. But when you're a service firm and you screw up with a client, you're in deep shit, right? You know, you might not get any more after that, you know, and I always felt a lot of pressure sometimes in those situations. Like we have to deliver, you know, on time, you know, we have to, uh, over, you know, uh, over deliver, over perform, you know, you, you kind of have one shot to, to do it right. Um, do you find that one of the two businesses that you've built have been more pressure or more, you know, you're also probably older and more experienced on your second one too. I, I started it the other way, but, uh, do you find any one or the other being more kind of pressure on you as a leader? I think for us, or specifically for me personally, the first was more pressure because I was the one that had to go out and do all the public relation work and always be the face of the company and saying, we built this app and it's awesome. And then there's something that doesn't work and you just like, it's coming right back at you. So there was criticism coming in and you had to make sure that every little detail was working because people would publicly discuss whether it's a failure or not. So that was... I think way more pressure because I actually held my face on the camera for that company and making sure it works. Um, Right now we do the same, like we make sure it works and there's pressure. But uh, one thing that I've learned from, especially being in the software field, which was completely new to me when I founded the first company and also this one, is that there is this gap in competences and what, what, actually takes away a lot of pressure is the fact that people come to us with problems they can't solve themselves. So from the very beginning, we often know whatever we do, given the situation of the client or the company right now, we can only do better because there has always been mistakes. There has always been misunderstanding for technology. And we just try to come in honestly and just wipe it out and make it nice. And um, so the pressure is there. But I think the confidence is way higher because every time we step in, we see what we can do if we do good work. Plus, um, that is something that uh, especially our developers like a lot. Uh, What I've learned from developers is to actually say no and to actually also tell your client, no, you're wrong. And that is stupid. That is something, I mean, I, I work with McKinsey and all we did all the time was trying to be the nice guys and saying, yes, and of course we do that. And no, that's no problem even though we knew it was stupid. Um, 
And right now it's more of if we see something doesn't make sense, we can openly state it because from a technological perspective, that's what it is. And you can't change that fact. And I think that's way more fun because you can actually really say, yes, you can do that, but we won't do it. Or you can you can burn money on that, but it would still be a dumb decision. So that's a that's a really interesting kind of segue, which I wanted to take it anyways, is this, you know, being able to say no. So it, being able to say no means that you have a certain level of credibility and respect coming from those clients. Um, when I built my software company, it was kind of by accident, right? People started coming to me because they knew I had been a, a technology founder of a high growth company. And they said, hey, you know, we're looking to do something similar. You've done this before. And next thing I know, there was a, a new business kind of being formed out of it. Because sometimes it's hard to get into that kind of service world without having the reputation of being an expert in a particular thing. Do you find that one of the reasons you have the clients that you do is because of your experience with Spotster? And they said, hey, this team can build something, you know, scalable and innovative. Maybe they can do that for us. So they're more apt to listen to you and take your feedback. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a lot built on the old company that we had and the fact that we kept relations with everyone we met very tight. Um the one thing that I'm always amazed of is um, we have this, let's say, competence gap in our team because my co-founder is one of the best techies that I've ever seen. When it comes to me, I'm not so much into tech. I do understand everything, but I wouldn't say I could code myself. I can do a couple of lines or HTML, the basic stuff, but I'm far away from coding anything. Um, and still our customers would address me for a problem just because they knew or no, I would say, yes, we can do it, or no, we can't do it. And I'm the person that they rely on to actually translate what's going on or to make sure that it's happening, even though I have no idea how it's happening. So that is what was that was something for me that was really interesting because you really need those two roles. You need the guys that are the experts, and then you need somebody who's an expert in the field of talking to your client and make them feel secure and trusted. I think that is the number one thing that we do right now is to establish trust because what I see is a lot of people just don't have any idea about software and that's fine. Nobody has to, but they have to trust that what's going on on the technical part does make sense and can be trusted. Right. That, that level of trust is really interesting and it's a position that I found myself in Um as a not, you know, after being a non-technical founder of a tech company and then having a software company, um, I thought, wow, I am a fish out of water. Like I don't belong in this space because I'm like you. I could do a little bit of HTML or hack together a WordPress site, but that's about the that's about the extent of my my skill set. But what I did realize was the clients wanted someone that spoke their language, and they felt more comfortable having kind of a middle person as a translator between the engineering teams and their requirements. We just actually put on a workshop recently on working with technical teams. And we had two pro really great product managers kind of talk about the tools, the processes, the language, and the ways to be able to kind of do that most effectively. Here you are, probably similar to me, not a technical person by training, now playing an integral role in being 
leading a technical, largely technical team. How did you find your footing in that space? And how did you kind of learn along the way? And what maybe what insights do you have for uh, other non-technical people in that in that position? Um, well, first of all, what I always say is that everyone can build up a tech company as long as they are willing to commit to the persons that work there. So if you would have asked me after my studies, what do you want to do? And I would have never said something in the field of software because that was so far away from anything I could do. I was, I was very proud of my Excel skills and that's it. Um, but uh, when it comes to the technical field, what I like a lot um, is it's a very fact-based interaction. So if somebody... If you work with the technical guys, what you have to make sure is that your communication is clear. So you state what you want and how you want it, and you make sure that you don't leave anything, let's say, like in between, like communication with, I, I implicitly said something doesn't really work. So what is nice about working with tech guys and software developers is they're very structured people. And though I tend to be a little odd and unorthodox at times and very creative. What I like a lot is, is structure. And I've never seen people working more logically than software developers, really breaking tasks down into single steps, making sure what is happening where and just like going one foot after the other. And once you actually see how it works, I think it changes the whole way that you perceive a problem. So my best example was... Uh, one discussion that we had with one of our first investors, he really came came at us badly concerning contract terms. And when you receive something from a lawyer as a 21-year-old, you kind of freak out about it. So I was in that freaking out mode and just chasing around the office, coming up with possible outcomes that this would imply, freaking out a little bit, getting nervous. And at some point, I just looked at my co-founder, tech guy, who was just sitting there quiet as a stone which freaked me out even more, standing in front of him and saying, why, why are you just sitting there? Why are you not freaking out? And he just looked at me in a very logical kind of way that I hated at that moment. It was like, there is no positive outcome of me running around and being nervous right now because it could be either of these options. And there's no surplus for me going through them right now because when it happens, I know what's going to be. But right now, I don't know. So why... Why invest time? And I was just standing in front of him frozen because it made total sense. It made me completely aggressive. But at some point I understood how he was doing or how he was processing situations. And right now I'd say I've learned a lot from that. I'm still chasing around at times and getting people a little upset. But still it's, it's gotten way better and way more structured. And also I think working with developers is inspiring in a sense that it never gets boring because they learn every day. I really am amazed by the, the capabilities of developers to learn every day some new problem-solving method or a new language, reading themselves into new technologies and discussing them. So I'd say I'd never get bored at work due to the fact that those people are really into what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, it sounds, one, it's really interesting. It sounds like you and your co-founder can be a bit of a yin and a yang with each other and and, and, and balance. And that's such a, a key piece. But <clears throat> before I get into that, I just wanted to dig a little deeper on this this one question. 
because I've been thinking a lot about product development processes. And, you know, when you're building a, a technology product that's going to, you know, a consumer product that's going to market, you know, you're constantly trying to push something out, get feedback. It, it tends to be a very lean and agile process. When you're dealing with a client like a big cruise ship company or something, they tend to have pretty clear requirements of what they want. Are you finding you had to transition from kind of an agile type environment to more of a traditional waterfall type process? Or do you get to take some of your startup ways of working and processes and still implement them with clients? Um, I think it's a bit of both. So we have some clients we hope that they're getting less and less, to be honest, that have very specific plans of what we should do and how it should look like, even though you might have a different opinion and whether that is good or not. It's very hard to communicate that. So there is this degree of frustration when you're sitting there and you know you have to build something that you would never publish yourself. Um, but that is just a small fraction of our customers because, to be honest, most projects that we take on, we don't take on every project, but the projects that we love most are those where we get complete freedom because it's often the case and that's why we're not like a software agency we don't build according to plan but we go into a company they tell us what the problem is and that where the goal would be and all the stuff that is in between how to get there is mostly left to us and that is also which you can see with the teams where the fun starts so that you can come up, develop the product yourself, throw in ideas, sit together in different teams. Um, for example, last month we did some penetration testing. So some hacking into systems and see where are security breaches that we could possibly find. And those are projects where you maybe are very creative. And I think this company could never be shifted to a mere service company because we're like hyperactive children and we get bored easily. So <laughs> that would be a problem. <laughs> so you're, you're still feeling like these projects feel like little startups within themselves. So that kind of vibe still maintains. Yeah, we, we still have this, as you said, yin and yang. We're still fighting over designs and what to do first and priorities. So it still is the product development that I loved so much when we started the first company. Awesome. I want to, there's been an underlying theme in our conversation so far that I really want to bring up to the surface. Um, and it's been all about relationships and maintaining relationships, whether we talked about it in the terms of clients. But what's really interesting to me is in terms of your team, it, it's not very often that, you know, a, a company exits, kind of cha has a change of ownership and the whole or most of the team continues on and does something new together. I mean, first of all, like, what's your secret sauce? How'd you, how'd you pull that magic off? You know, what, what do you think makes you guys kind of unique in that regard that you were able to do that? That's a good question that I haven't solved completely for ourselves yet. But um, I think one factor is that my, my, one co-founder and I, we know each other since high school. So that put a lot to it. So we know our families, we know how the other person is functioning. We have a very specific, very sarcastic kind of humor and can pull off a lot of jokes due to the fact that we have such a long history. 
that definitely is one fact that I also always recommend to new founders that when you try to find a co-founder, if you have the option of choosing somebody that you've known for quite some time, go for that person and not somebody completely new, even if the new one might have a different skill set. Um, because you basically are married. It's worse than marriage, what you have to do with your co-founder. Um, and the second thing I think really is this mix of different personalities that we have because, um, well, Toby is more of a tech guy than our second co-founder. Janis is more the quiet translating person. And then there's me who's mostly jumping around the office, making noise and uh, being very <laughs> extrovert. Um, that is a mixture that I think works perfectly because it's just, it just, there is some addition with us. And one thing that we always put first um, is to, to see that everyone in the office likes what he or she is doing. And if they don't, we try to find a solution to that. And something that I noticed very early when we founded in 2013, as I said, we were one of the first teams with a girl on the team. And there were all those other WHU startups of my um, roommates and fellow students. And it was all male WHU students. They were successful in everything, but there was one incremental difference when you entered into the office buildings because the offices of the boys club were mostly very rational, not that nice a place to stay, also a bit messy <laughs> from my perspective. And it wasn't this, this feeling of uh, getting into a room and feeling at ease because I mean, we were all bootstrapped, so there was no money, but still with us, mostly depending on me, I guess, we always had some, some plans standing around, making a nice atmosphere, making it livable, having some toys standing around and trying to create this atmosphere that was very distinct. And I still remember during my studies when people started to talk about soft skills. For me, that was like bullet, bullet point learning, not really valuable because I thought that a formula is way much more knowledge than talking about soft skills. But in the end, I think that's what it all came down to. So it's a lot about how do you talk to people? How do you convince people to work for you? How do you come up with humor? How, come you, how do you do feedback? Stuff that we never learned and stuff that all of a sudden made up 100% of our business success. So the, this, these communication skills, the, the culture building, the kind of environment of of lightness and fun you know obviously you're a pretty extroverted human being you have some of this some of this stuff is intrinsic would you say like the ability to build an organization like that is it is it a little bit by chance and kind of a, a reflection of your personality or was it a, a deliberate process or was it something you had to learn and evolve over time like it's so hard it's what it, as a startup founder and you know i've made i feel like i've made every mistake in the book like i've hired some of the greatest greatest people in the world and i've like two weeks into a hire i've gone oh shit what have i done you know like um sometimes people mesh sometimes they don't no matter how hard you try to build the right environment it doesn't always work what what do you attribute it to? Was it a, just a natural thing that happened? Did you learn it? Did you try? I mean, yes, maybe a little bit natural. I mean, you can change a person's personality. Um, 
I'd done team sports before and everything. So you kind of know how to handle stressful situations or to get along with somebody that you might not like, but is needed for your success. That's one thing. But I think the other thing really is uh, um, necessity. There's, there's one saying that uh, necessity makes up for innovation because if you don't have the money and we surely didn't at the beginning we were two broke students who kind of tried to make a living we had a, an office that was underground hardly any daylight we didn't have fancy office equipment we asked our first employees to bring their own computers and mobile phones our payroll was very bad um and we were always sitting there and asking ourselves, so why are people working here? Like, why would you come to this place? We're not really paying that good. There's there's no extras. And people were still coming because it was just fun. Um, and I think if you don't have the means to come up with the fancy stuff that keeps the corporate world running and makes people forget how boring the job is, you really get inventive. So instead of having a fancy company event where everyone can be so proud that he made it in the career letter, you come up with some games that you make up with, in our case, PET bottles, where you throw people in to actually do bowling and stuff like that. And uh, that actually created memories that a normal corporation hardly ever creates because then there come people about workplace safety and stuff like that, stuff we didn't know about at that point in time. <laughs> um, but I think that is the difference in leaving a group where you create a lot of good memories, where you have the feeling that you create a good product and where you actually laugh at work um, keeps the whole thing running way better than throwing money at people, I think. And um, I think the difference between corporations and people who come from a startup environment or founders is that founders have gone through that phase of necessity. And I guess you never really lose it that much because if you know what it is to clean your own office or to make up for rent, that kind of sticks with you. And so you you always think twice as to what to do with your company. And I guess that's what forms relations. So I say it kind of came from being young, not really experienced, broke <laughs> and a little enthusiastic <laughs> <laughs> so that's a really it's a really interesting point and it, it's one that I, I've experienced before you know when it's one thing when you're building an organization everybody's like young and idealistic and ready to change the world and if they're not working their asses off they want to go out and dance and drink and become human bowling pins or whatever, whatever it might be like. Um, and you can, because there's a level of homogeneity and people are kind of similar, same demographic, you've now worked with largely the same team for eight years, right? So now some of these people are a little bit older. I don't know, maybe they're getting married or having kids or doing things like that. Are you, are you still able to maintain that same kind of culture? Because we as humans aren't static, Right. We we change over time, not not profoundly necessarily, but our priorities and our values might change. Like I know people that I worked with in early stage startups where we would work, you know, 70 hours in a row to get something out. Now we're like, oh, you know, I got to be home at noon to to take care of my son for a couple hours. You know, are you seeing as you guys are growing older, you've had to adapt the 
the organization and your style and stuff too, or? Yes, a little bit. Um, in terms of, for example, workload, um, we're not requiring anyone to sit here until midnight and do stuff that we have done before in the first startup where we definitely had a higher workload just to make our standing. But um, I think the difference right now that we can do it is not that we work less, but that we got more efficient and more experienced. So tasks that I would have done in my first startup that took me four hours, I would never ever do again in this startup because I know it doesn't make sense. It's just, it's biting the hours. So we have... Um, we have changes in uh, in our team, for example, marriage and stuff like that. We have all that, but um, what we keep is this feeling of being a group that is extended also to the partners of our employees. So we know each and every partner, we know the wives, um, and they're always also invited to come along or to just like hang out here. And I think that kind of helps. Yes, you get more mature, but with a little bit of pride, I can say we're still <laughs> the kindergarten that we started. <laughs> nice. Well, well played, Freya. Well played. <laughs> and also, what what is nice to see is, I mean, we have very mature customers, huge corporations, and they mostly enjoy working with us because, well, we are different. We don't try to be as serious as they are, and. Like to a certain extent, yes, but still they see we come in, we come in as a team, we, we enjoy what we're doing. And we also make some jokes at the conference table. And I think that also lightens up their day at times. <laughs> awesome. You know, I, I, I relate to that so much because I was probably the guy that would drop F-bombs in the client meetings and tell inappropriate, make inappropriate comments here and there, which it actually makes me want to ask one question about that and it's on the topic of of authenticity right like one of the great things about being a founder especially when you've got your own little insulated team and you're building a product out there is you know you can really largely be who you are you know i mean there is these adages of you got to fake it till you make it with investors and blah 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 but i think most people now know that 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 doesn't work but when you're now sitting in a boardroom of a, a large company, um, I have seen so many times people turn on the professional switch, you know, and or in, in, you know, in Germany, it's the Z versus do culture, you know, and how how people just go from informal to formal at 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 a switch and me being an American living in Germany, like I don't I don't do that very well. And I'm sure anyone that's listening to this that knows me will agree with that. But uh, I don't do the formal very well. And, I, you know, my, my short response is, fuck it. I've, I've earned that I don't have to anymore. <laughs> but how is it, I mean, how is it for you being still pretty young, being female, you know, being a, a somewhat of a service organization, working with these big companies, you know, it sounds like you still kind of maintain an authentic identity. Do you ever feel like you have to check that or are you just uh, unapologetically you and that works for you? I think I am me and it works, but compared to your example, um, the thing is that I grew up in a two-faced world where I always had to switch between the formal and the informal because a very classic family, also always uh, dragging along to appointments with my dad. So I'm, I'm kind of used to be around uh, a more formal setup. And also 
I think that's the one crucial thing. I do like language a lot. And if you master language, if you know how to actually formulate a sentence that tells your opponent implicitly the F-bomb, but in a very nice and polite way, in a way that is very diplomatic, you don't change what you think, you say what you say, but you adapt to the situation in a way that everyone agrees to. And I think that is something that uh, helps a lot. So using language to alter your appearance to the person that is talking to you helps tremendously. That was actually the cornerstone of the first success of our first company because I loved working with journalists and to like play around with words, which helped a lot. And uh, then there's also this thing that I think confidence is a huge factor of how you actually enter into room. And the good thing of me, I, I thank whoever God may be, um, for the opportunity that I didn't work in a huge corporation and that didn't get used to being very formal and serving as an employee all the time, but that I had to set up for myself that I had some rough decisions to make because right now when I enter such room, my personal gain is maximized when I just do my thing because that's what I want to do. And I don't really bent to any rules just because somebody has longer tenure I have to respect them or something like that that's just in the self-confidence that you gain by standing up for your own and that is a, something that in a in a social setup makes you appear so much more sympathetic because people think wow that's like an appearance although you didn't do anything it's just like you know what you've been through and so you don't really you don't care whether that's a board member or not. It's for me, it's just a person. Yeah. 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 It is maybe one of the greatest gifts of being a, a lifelong entrepreneur, you know, is it doesn't matter how nice of their suit or what seat at the table they are. Everybody, you know, you've been through your own grind and you know, that's enough. That's enough for you. So I, and also like humor. Humor is a, is a big thing I've I, I found. If you're able to make witty comments or to shoot back, there's a lot of this, this testing of territory. And if you just shoot back in a way that is still intelligent, but still giving somebody the whip, you will make it pretty easily, I guess. It is the magic of language. I talk about this a lot, you know, using using certain language at the right, with the right timing and in the right context. Of course, it could be very confrontational. It can also be very disarming. You know, we talked about the F-bomb, right? If you say the F-bomb in a certain way, it could be extremely confrontational. Sometimes if you, could, if you say the F-bomb, it can suck all the stressful air right out of the room and put everybody at ease, you know? So that ability to kind of read an environment and, and use the right language is, uh, you know, some people have it naturally, but I think being an entrepreneur and having to sell yourself to so many different types of people. I mean, I don't know how many investor pitches you've done or how many me media events that you've done, but like, you know, you have to read the environment, maintain true to yourself and then respond effectively. And, you know, I think that's a, 
you know, one of those funny soft skills. But I also don't think it's a, a one you can just check the box. I don't think it's one you can learn in a classroom or learn from reading a book. You kind of have to, you kind of have to fuck up a few times and do the tri the trial and error experience. <laughs> you have to tell the joke when the whole room goes silent. <laughs> you know, kind of. <laughs> but we had like there was one very very concise event that we had with my co-founders. So we left our hometown a couple of years ago and he was the perfect software guy. He wouldn't speak much, was rather the, the quiet kind of person, knowledgeable, but not so much extra word. And then we came back uh, to a party of our school friends, high school friends last year. And um, there was a speech to be held and everyone approached me was like, can you hold the speech? I was like, no, 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 no. I, I don't know the people as well as Toby does. Let, let Toby hold, help hold the speech. I mean, he's perfect at it. And everything was just staring at me because all I knew was him way back in high school. He wasn't the guy to stand up and hold a speech. So they were looking at me like, why would we give the speech to him? I was like, because he's really good at that. And so Toby grabbed the microphone, started a speech to the birthday boy, made hilarious jokes and just ruled the room and then one of my fellow high school uh friends just stood next to me and asked me so when did that happen <laughs> i was like what are you talking about and he just went like he's talking and entertaining when did that happen and that was just one moment for me where i realized how much you can develop into that role because I had completely forgotten that it was different because I work with that guy every day, 14 hours a day. And I was just standing there for the first time seeing this, this transformation that had taken place within six years. Oh, so cool. So cool. And that breaks all sorts of stereotypes about engineers too, which is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Fred, I want to ask you, you know, you talked a little bit about your, your younger days. Um, I like to ask all of the guests on an episode this question is, you know, you've you've been down the road a couple times now. Um, you're getting to a point where you can, you know, eight years is time you can start looking back and reflecting a little bit. What have you learned now as a two-time founder that you wish you could tell yourself at the beginning of your entrepreneurial journey, what are some of the what's a nugget of wisdom that you would share with a, a young entrepreneur? Not to be shy and not to shoot low. So demand more than you think you'd need, and uh, demand it with vehemence. I'd say. And w when you say that demand from, uh, do you mean that in all contexts, from your employees, from the market, from uh, investors, like? Yeah, definitely every angle. So investors, first thing would be we would have we should have started with a bigger investment in the beginning because that would have given us some speed. Then also when it comes to employees, when the first problems appeared with employees and we were new to the role of being the employer, we didn't know how to address it. So we were kind of like timid about it, didn't address the issue, waited until it exploded. Um, where we would we should have been way more rough than we were in the beginning. Same for market and marketing so in the beginning you start with like small amounts because you don't want to spend so much on marketing it seems huge sums to you but in fact it isn't and if you shoot one big campaign you know it's working or you don't but if you stretch that over a period of time it's kind of useless in the analytics part um so yes for every part just be bold and demand more than you think is realistic because that helps a lot awesome I love that. I think that's great. 
Uh, two quick rapid-fire questions. Again, I ask them to everybody. Some people love them, some people hate them. But the, fir the first one is, you learn so much about a person by what they read. Do you have a book on your bedside table, or do you have something you've read recently that you would uh, you would recommend? Yeah, definitely. Um, Amor Towels, A Gentleman in Moscow. Big recommendation. Fiction? Yep. Fiction, all right, all right. I uh, work in technology every day and eat fiction at night. <laughs> awesome. Is that your way to kind of turn it off, turn off the brain a little bit? I, I feel like the entrepreneurs I meet are split. They're either reading self-help, nonfiction type stuff, or they're like, I want to turn off the brain and read something. Or, or they have kids and all they do is read children's books. So there's like three three different categories. <laughs> cool. On the same note, um, you know, I've interviewed your number, I think, 24 for this uh, for this podcast. I, I can't help to escape the magnet that is Berlin. We have so many founders that are in Berlin. It's such a pleasure to have someone that's, uh, uh, as much as I love Berlin, it's such a pleasure to have someone from somewhere else. Um, I'm, I'm so used to saying, oh, well, you're from the music capital of Germany. What are you listening to? You, from from Hamburg. What's, uh, what is on your playlist? What would you, what can you recommend to jam out to these days? Uh, I'm rather old school, I guess. So there's a lot of Johnny Cash all the way down. Um, <laughs> and then also uh, one specific podcast that I just recently discovered, which is Darknet Diaries. Also a huge recommendation to everyone who wants to learn about what's going on in the hacker Darknet world. I like it a lot. Well, you had me at the man in black. He's one of... <laughs> <laughs> we could do another episode talking about Mr. Cash in itself. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Freya Ola, thanks. As usual, always enjoy our conversations. I'm grinning from ear to ear, as I always do when we have a chat. It was, uh, it was lovely to talk to you. It was great to hear your story. Again, thanks for the invite. It was a great time. I guess, as you would say, moin. Ola. <laughs> <laughs> Tschüss. Tschüss. <laughs> well, folks, that was Freya Ola, VHU alum, founder of Spotster, and currently founder of digital innovation firm Drytausen Sasa. Stay tuned for our next episode, which goes live every other Wednesday. Until then, be sure to check out our website at mostawesomepodcast.com, follow our channel on YouTube, and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast streaming service. Bis nächstes Mal.